I'm David Finnamore. I'm Professor of European Politics here at Queen's University, Belfast, capital of Northern Ireland, a port city, one which has had a history of challenges and one which is facing even more challenges at the moment. I'm not originally from Northern Ireland. I've been here for the best part of 20 years, coming here just after the Good Friday Agreement was uh, signed and at the time when they were putting up the new structures of, of government, government which has produced a number of executives in recent decades, but unfortunately doesn't want to have one at the moment. So we're in a bit of a political crisis. We're also facing the prospect of Brexit sometime in the near future. We're right at the beginning of the, the academic year here in Belfast. Lots of students coming back, lots of students coming here for the first time. An increasingly international feel around the place as more international students join us at Queen's. Interesting times for all of us because of how prominent the whole question of Brexit is in contemporary politics, particularly at this time because we're now into the negotiations. We've had a, a flurry of position papers from the British government, position papers from the EU 27, and we've got coming up on the 19th, 20th of October, a European Council summit. Brexit's important for Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland occupies a unique position in the process. That uniqueness comes from a number of factors primarily the fact that it's the only part of the United Kingdom that has a border with another EU member state. So post-Brexit, that border will become a border between the UK and the EU27. And this raises lots of questions about movement of people, movement of goods, how that's going to be facilitated. Another dimension to the uniqueness of Northern Ireland is obviously its historical position. We had from the late 1960s, for the best part of 30 years, the troubles in Northern Ireland, um, civil conflict in the region, terrorist activity, lots of people killed. And we're now in a, a post-conflict peace process. And there's questions raised about how Brexit may actually impact on that process. And in particular, how it will affect the functioning of the, the core underpinning of the so-called Belfast Good Friday Agreement. If we go back to the EU referendum in June 2016, where a majority in the UK voted for the United Kingdom to leave the EU and look at the vote in Northern Ireland, what we see is that in Northern Ireland, 56% of the population voted for the United Kingdom to remain inside the EU. Uh, so obviously a larger majority than the 52% overall in the UK that voted for the UK to, to leave the EU. That vote is interesting mainly because we see a higher concentration of Remain voters in the border areas. If you were living on the border, in the border counties, you were far more likely to vote for Remain, whereas the further you moved away from it, more likely you were to, to vote for Leave. What we also see from analyses that have been done since the vote is that more nationalists, people who would identify themselves as being Irish, voted to remain, whereas more people who would identify themselves as British, so-called unionists, voted primarily to leave. So we have a, a split in opinion here on Brexit, which falls along more traditional lines, which have divided the community here. Under the Good Friday Agreement, provision was made for an assembly in Northern Ireland and for an executive, a government for Northern Ireland. Shortly um, before EU referendum in June 2016, we had assembly elections. That produced a new assembly. But by the time we got to December 2016, there were significant differences within the, the executive, and ultimately that executive collapsed. 
As a consequence, since the early part of 2017, Northern Ireland hasn't had a formal voice in the Brexit process. There is no government here to formulate that voice. The absence of an executive in Northern Ireland has not necessarily meant that the Northern Ireland position has not been recognised in the whole Brexit process. The British government has made clear its desire to ensure that the Good Friday Agreement continues to function. Um, it is obviously keen to ensure that the challenges around the border are addressed in the negotiations as well. That said, for some people, the Northern Ireland dimension has not gained the, the, the prominence in British government papers, for example, that it might merit even though there has been a paper already on the Northern Ireland Island dimension. It's not just the UK government that uh, has a strong interest in ensuring that the challenges for Brexit for Northern Ireland are addressed. There's a clear interest on the part of the Irish government to ensure that the peace process continues, that there is as little disruption as possible economically, politically, security, socially. So if we look at what the Irish government has been saying, it's been very, very prominent, particularly in recent months, in advocating that the UK stays in the single market, stays in the customs union, to ensure that there is minimal disruption on the island. This support for Northern Ireland or this awareness of the issues that Northern Ireland faces is also reflected in the way in which the EU27 have been preparing for the negotiations. If we go back to the European Council guidelines adopted in April 2017, um, we see quite significant prominence given to Northern Ireland and importantly the European Council stated quite clearly that flexible and imaginative solutions will be required including with the aim of avoiding a hard border, to ensure that the peace process can continue, that the Good Friday Agreement in all its parts can continue to be implemented. So when we look at the state of the negotiations, it's not just that the UK government is very much aware of what the implications could be for Northern Ireland and wanting to see those addressed, but on the other side of the negotiating table, partly at the behest of the Irish, but more generally a desire on the part of the EU27, to think creatively about how you can manage the Brexit process for the island of Ireland as a whole, but also for Northern Ireland and particularly the border. Brexit poses enormous challenges for Northern Ireland. A lot of these stem from the fact that some quite intricate relationships have been developed over the course of the UK's membership of the EU, or I should say the UK and Ireland's membership of the EU. That's created free movement of goods, services, capital and people on the island. On top of that, you've also got structures for cooperation being developed as a consequence of the Good Friday Agreement. We've got not only the establishment of the Assembly and the Executive in Northern Ireland and the uh, issue of human rights being given prominence, but also quite extensive networks of North-South cooperation on the island, particularly in the border areas, um, and also quite extensive East-West cooperation, or at least the potential for it, between the British and Irish and the various representatives of the devolved administrations in the UK. In addition, we have the common travel area, which has basically given British and Irish nationals the right to move freely across the, the islands. The common travel area is, is interesting because it's a mix of, of law, custom, practice, which has evolved over the best part of 100 years since Northern Ireland was established in the early 1920s. And it's also evolved in the context of EU membership. Um, and so sometimes unpicking what is the common travel area and what is EU membership can prove slightly, slightly difficult. So, for example, we have the free movement of people established through EU membership. 
But it's also understood that that's part of the common travel area. The question is, what happens with Brexit? And there is an argument out there that we need to go back and try and clearly identify what the common travel area is and ensure that it is put on a more solid legal footing, such that the the practices, the norms, the, the understanding of what the common travel area is can survive the Brexit process. A lot of the challenges that Brexit poses for Northern Ireland are the result of the fact that it does have a land border with the Republic of Ireland. When we think in a UK context of borders, traditionally one has thought, if one's sitting in London or or, or Manchester, of the border being essentially a sea border, or it's the border which you cross when you enter at an airport. If you've got a land border, the notion of the border is completely different. We have in Northern Ireland a 499 kilometre border, um, which today is barely perceptible. You can hardly see it. This obviously contrasts with the height of the Troubles, when we did have quite extensive military presence on the border. You had watchtowers at various locations, and there was clearly a heightened sense of security. Um, Movement was restricted. Part of the peace process, part of the European integration process, has been to do away with all the borders, to do away with all the manifestation of border, of control. Today, you can move from north to south, south to north, and not know in which jurisdiction you find yourself. Brexit raises the prospect of reintroducing some form of border control. And that can be with regard to the movement of goods, can be with regard to the movement of people. The nature of the the border post-Brexit will ultimately depend quite significantly on the future relationship which the UK establishes with the EU. If the UK were to stay in the single market, were to stay in the customs union, then the amount of additional control compared to what we have at the moment on the border would not be particularly great. Uh, There would have to be some additional controls, particularly regarding the movement of agricultural goods. One of the things which is often forgotten in the discussion of the future UK-EU trade relationship is that where the EU has established free trade agreements with states, they've never really covered agriculture. Now, agriculture is important in a Northern Ireland Ireland context because of its contribution to the economy. In Northern Ireland, we still have a quite a significant agricultural sector. But more importantly, the extent to which a lot of uh, agricultural goods move north-south across the border, particularly as part of the um, processing. For example, a lot of milk in the north of uh, Ireland moves across the border for processing and then comes back into the north of Northern Ireland for onward uh, distribution. That supply chain would be significantly disrupted. We've also got arrangements in place where, for example, pigs or sheep may be reared in either the north or the south, but they're slaughtered in the other jurisdiction and then possibly move back into the other one for, for further distribution. So there's some quite integrated supply chains in place which would be disrupted quite significantly if you did not find yourself in a position where the free movement of agricultural goods was not sustained on the island. We've also got challenges around the movement of goods more generally if the UK is outside the customs union. It raises the question, where do you put the customs controls? And there would have to be customs controls somewhere. No one's really worked out the solution to this at the moment, but wherever you put controls, that's going to add cost for business, particularly those businesses in the border area which rely on short journeys for for trading purposes. Do you really want to have those companies subjected to border controls, customs controls each time they they cross the border, particularly when profit margins are very low?
A lot of businesses simply cannot afford to increase costs, which would come about as a consequence of administration in terms of time spent um, processing customs requirements and potentially even waiting at the border to get clearance to move across. There's no real desire to add to the economic uh, difficulties a lot of these traders face. We then have the question of the free movement of people. For many people, the border simply does not exist. They can live in Northern Ireland and work in the Republic of Ireland, vice versa. Some of them will have businesses in one location but live in the other. If there were to be a hard border, the freedom to move, which has become so part and parcel of their life, would be disrupted. There's also the wider implications of what the border or a reinforced border would be for people psychologically. When we think of the border in a Northern Ireland context, we have to realise that the removal of the border is seen to be integral to the peace process. What happens if you start to bring in controls to people's understanding of the peace process? Do they begin to doubt the direction of that process? We'll have to find out. But I think there is a sense out there that psychologically introducing border controls, reintroducing the border, manifestations of the border, whether it's customs control, whether it's even electronic surveillance mechanisms, would be seen by quite a number of people as a a retrograde step in what has been a fragile peace process at times, and one which people do not want to see reversing. Another issue around the border is the cost of introducing controls. It's a long border, 499 kilometres. Different estimates state that it has between 200 and 300 different crossings. How are you going to monitor all those crossings? Are you going to have a situation where you limit people to crossing at one of a dozen places? Uh, That has implications for the free movement of people. You've then got to work out the logistics of the infrastructure, the costing of the infrastructure, putting all the electronic surveillance in that some people suggest is the way forward with regard to, to the border Although it has to be said that the British government has indicated it does not want any physical manifestation of the border, at least at the border point. You've then got the issue of personnel. You need customs officials. You need people to to monitor the border. You need people to to inspect cargoes. This all costs. You've then got to build the locations where you can actually carry out those checks. You've probably got to adapt all the border crossings. At the moment, there is only one north-south crossing, which is dual carriageway. This, this raises quite important practical problems, which, when you add them all together, could see a huge amount of money being spent on an infrastructure which nobody wants, which could be politically disruptive, and which, for many people, will be particularly economically disruptive. Hence, a lot of people are trying to think through how you might draw on the EU's language of flexibility and imagination to think how you can avoid the border being reintroduced, or at least if it is reintroduced, keep it to an absolute minimum of a, of a presence. One of the consequences of EU membership for the island of Ireland is that we've seen through the free movement of goods, services, capital and people the development of single markets on the island or all-island markets. Some people even go so far as to say we've got an all-island economy in certain sectors. And obviously Brexit um, and the possibility of the UK being outside the customs union, outside the single market, could prove to be very disruptive to those. We've mentioned agriculture, but there's also the issue of electricity 
um, the fact that the island of Ireland is treated as a single electricity market. What happens when the UK is out of the single market to the effective functioning of that single electricity market on the island, which is vitally important in terms of obviously electricity supply. It's interesting that the British government highlighted this in their paper on Northern Ireland and Ireland and the Brexit negotiations as something which they were very keen to see kept. Um, How that can be done remains to be seen. What we also see, particularly around the border, is economies of scale being developed as a consequence of quite extensive cross-border cooperation. One of the areas in which this has been particularly developed is in the area of public health, where the development of hospitals, of health provision, uh, one side of the border has contributed to the offering or to the provision of, of healthcare on the other side of the border. So, for example, the big hospital up in Derry, Londonderry, is one which has been built on the understanding that there's access there to people from Donegal, from the other side of the Irish border. Now, nobody wants to disrupt what is some very effective cross-border cooperation. But if you've got one part of the island inside the EU and one outside the EU, that raises challenges. And those will need to be addressed in the context of the Brexit negotiations. We then have the whole question of policing and security, something which has uh, been prominent in people's minds for, for a long time on the island, particularly across the border. A lot of that takes place within the context of EU cooperation frameworks. European arrest warrant, for example, joint participation in, in Europol. How can the existing level of cooperation be sustained, enhanced, when the UK is potentially outside of Europol, outside the European arrest warrant? How do you begin to address those issues? Here, one could argue there might be a case for sustaining some of the existing levels of cooperation through Northern Ireland's participation in some of these mechanisms. A lot depends, once again, on the nature of the future UK-EU relationship. If the UK were to stay in the European arrest warrant, were to stay in Europol or have a very, very close relationship, the disruption uh, in terms of cooperation on the island of Ireland between North and South would be minimised. But we need to get to the point where the issues are recognised, they're fed into negotiations and some practical solutions uh, are are pursued. Obviously, a a major concern for those involved in negotiating the UK's withdrawal from the EU is that Brexit does not adversely impact on the peace process. Clearly, Northern Ireland's come a long way in the last two and a half decades, particularly with the Good Friday Agreement being put in place, particularly with the the emergence of political structures. But I think one thing we need to remember is that the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement, the development of the peace process, has taken place in the context of the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland being members of the European Union, members of of an organisation which has promoted integration, whether that be market integration, whether that be the free movement of people, whether that be the free movement of services. A high level of integration on the island of Ireland has occurred, such that the division between the north of the island, the south of the island, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, particularly around the border, is barely perceptible. I think it's encouraging that uh, the British government in its paper on Ireland and Northern Ireland has already indicated that it wants peace funding of some form to continue post-Brexit. This is important because while the peace funding isn't a huge amount, it does allow a lot of very localised grassroots interaction between different groups 
within Northern Ireland across the border, such that confidence can be built between different communities. And on the back of that, you can begin to really embed the peace process. The challenge for everybody involved in negotiating Brexit is to ensure, as far as possible, the peace process is maintained. To avoid a situation where divisions within society become more manifest. As we saw with the referendum result, nationalists tended to vote in favour of Remain, unionists tended to vote in favour of Leave. This highlighted a division within society, a division between the Green, the nationalist, and the Orange, the unionist, a division which could be exacerbated um, if Brexit is not managed effectively and if the challenges that Northern Ireland faces are not addressed creatively. We've looked at a number of the challenges that Brexit poses for Northern Ireland. We've also identified the fact that the EU, the British government, the Irish government recognises there are unique challenges on the island of Ireland that Brexit raises. They've also bought into the idea that we should be looking for some flexible and imaginative solutions question is, what form might those solutions take? We honestly don't know because we've never been here before. The EU has never seen a, a member state leave and obviously it's never had to deal with the prospect of the reimposition of a, of a border. One question to be asked is, could Northern Ireland stay in the European economic area even if the UK decided to withdraw from it? If it did, then it would be part of that extension of the single market, which covers not just the EU, but also Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway. If Northern Ireland did remain in the European economic area, you'd have the maintenance of the free movement of goods, services, capital and people on the island, or at least for the most part. One of the drawbacks of the European economic area is that it doesn't cover trade and agricultural goods. That then raises the question, particularly given how important for cross-border trade and agricultural goods is for the Northern Ireland economy, how might you maintain free movement of agricultural goods? Something which the EU has not necessarily been particularly generous on in the past. Could Northern Ireland be a part of an all-island free trade area in agricultural goods? If not, could you do it in a specific number of sectors, particularly around, say, livestock? The idea of maintaining all-island markets has already been signalled in the British government's support for keeping the, the single electricity market. So if you're willing to do it in the area of electricity, could you do it in the area of agriculture as well? Beyond trade issues, I think we've also got the question of infrastructure. The EU has developed over the years quite an extensive structural funding available to support infrastructure projects, road building, for example. If there is a strong commitment to addressing the unique circumstances of the island of Ireland in the Brexit process, could one envisage an arrangement whereby projects either of a cross-border nature or projects in Northern Ireland might be eligible for funding under the EU structural funds? Could, for example, the Irish government draw on European Investment Bank funding to support projects of a cross-border nature? We don't know, but I think if we're going to be flexible, there might be opportunities there. If the United Kingdom government did decide not to participate in research and technological development funding initiatives or couldn't secure access to them, could you nevertheless allow institutions, organisations on the island of Ireland 
to, to participate. In the area of police and security cooperation, if the UK did not sign up to the European arrest warrant, could you allow the European arrest warrant to function on the island of Ireland? We have to think quite flexibly here. And I'd argue that there's scope for flexibility, not just because of the language of the EU, but I think the political commitment of the EU26 to support Ireland in this process, a fellow member state that is being quite adversely affected by Brexit as a consequence of a vote in the United Kingdom, a vote over which it had absolutely no influence. So a certain amount of solidarity is there. I think also we have to remember that the EU does see itself as having played a role in the peace process in Northern Ireland, a very much a supporting role, sees Northern Ireland's peace process as a success and obviously would not want to be doing anything which would undermine that process. So I think there's a genuine will to find flexible and imaginative solutions which can be applied on the island of Ireland and obviously one would hope to Northern Ireland's benefit. The last what, 14 months since the referendum has been a, a very busy period for us. A lot of people are interested in obviously Brexit, but also a lot of people are increasingly interested in the Northern Ireland dimension to it and the, the issues around the land border. As a consequence, we've been busy. We've been involved in some parliamentary inquiries. Um, so we've been speaking to the House of Lords and committees, speaking to the House of Commons committees. We've also been doing a lot of work with journalists from outside Northern Ireland, outside the UK, who've expressed an interest in what is happening here, uh, what the challenges are and how they might be addressed. We've been very active on the academic side of things. Lots of conferences have been taking place around the Brexit question. We were recently at a conference in, in Krakow in, in Poland where we had a, a full session which was very well attended, looking at some of the political, economic, constitutional issues which Brexit raises and how you can begin to address those within the context of the negotiations. We've been involved in running what we call a Brexit clinic where we've provided two or three minute updates from about four or five of us on where we are with the process and then had an open discussion. I think we had about 65 people at the last one, people from across Belfast, um, whether that be business, whether it be civil servants, whether it be students, people off the street interested in catching up on where we are. I think there is an appetite out there for understanding. And one could say that in the context of perceived, if not actual chaos in London, a sense of open thinking <laughs> um, and commentary is something which is sought by a lot of people. Thank <laughs> you.